0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois, Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein.
1: Welcome. How are health-related quality-of-life assessments being incorporated into clinical trials and, most importantly, everyday practice? Joining us to discuss quality of life, what does it measure, and how does it help is Dr. Brennan Spiegel, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Digestive Diseases at the UCLA School of Medicine and a practicing gastroenterologist in the VA Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System. Welcome, Brennan. How are you?
2: Okay, thanks for having me.
1: Well, let's get right to the point. It's a pleasure to have you, and tell us, what is health-related quality of life?
2: Well, this is a concept that's been around really since the 1940s. The World Health Organization and its charter constitution back in 1948 came across a new definition of health. They said that health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So that was revolutionary because it emphasized that health has to do with not only physiologic health but also social health and psychological health. So when we think about health-related quality of life with our patients or in clinical trials, we're thinking about biopsychosocial health, all three of those concepts together.
1: Is this easily measured or better yet, how do we measure this?
2: Well, it can be tricky. There's lots of different ways of measuring health-related quality of life. We use instruments, and an instrument is just another fancy word for a questionnaire. And there's two different kinds of instruments. There are disease targeted instruments, and there are generic instruments. So, a generic instrument is a questionnaire that can be applied generically to any number of different conditions. Classic example is the SF36, that's often used across a lot of different areas within gastroenterology and outside, and it has 36 different items. And an item is just a question and they can get rolled up into different domains. And then there are these disease-targeted instruments that are specifically designed for particular conditions. So like the IBS-QOL is an example of an instrument that was developed specifically for irritable bowel syndrome.
1: How many of these disease-specific monitors do we have?
2: Oh, there are a lot. I mean, within the field of gastroenterology, we have disease-specific instruments for most of the major conditions. So, IBS-QOL is one of about five or six that are available for IBS. In GERD, I recently looked at this, there's at least 15 different instruments that have been created. There's the IBDQ for inflammatory bowel disease. We recently created one for hepatitis B. There's some for hepatitis C. So it's hard for me to even estimate, but I'd say at least there's 20 or 30 available just within the field of gastroenterology.
1: Are these being used in clinical trials?
2: More and more trials are starting to look at patient-reported outcomes in general. These are so-called PROs or patient-reported outcomes. And a patient-reported outcome is just that. It's an outcome that relies upon patient report as opposed to some physiologic measure or biochemical measure, the kind of outcomes that we're used to in medicine, health-related quality of life is a subset of patient-reported outcomes. And more and more companies are interested in obtaining claims to show that their drug or their intervention improves overall quality of life, not just some physiologic measure like let's say hemoglobin A1C for diabetics or bowel movement frequency for IBS or CDAI for IBD, but to actually show that their drug improves the way patients actually feel from a biopsychosocial standpoint.
1: Well, does quality of life measures actually parallel qualitatively or quantitatively uh, physiologic endpoints that have been traditionally used in clinical trials?
2: Well, the good ones do, and there's a concept out there called uh, validity, And I talked about how there's at least 30 or more endpoints that are available, but not all of them are necessarily good. And one of the litmus tests that we use to determine if one of these endpoints is good is whether or not it tracks with the physiologic parameters that we care about. A good quality of life measure should correlate somewhat with the important physiologic measures. Now, it's not a perfect correlation by any stretch and that's why we measure them separately, but it would be curious if the physiologic measures go up or get better while quality of life gets worse. That's a little bit unusual, though it can sometimes happen. So the short answer is they don't always correlate perfectly, but they should track with each other in general.
1: Can you give us an example where physiologically things improve, but quality of life worsens?
2: There's a lot of examples like that, and, and a good example might be in irritable bowel syndrome. We're trained to ask patients a lot about their bowel movements and what their Bristol stool scale is and you know, how frequently they have them and you know all sorts of stuff about bowel movements. And we can make someone's bowel movements get better with something like loperamide or modium, but the patient may not feel better whatsoever. In fact, it may, may feel worse. So we have many instances where patients' quality of life continues to get worse and worse, although we're improving what we think is the important outcome. But patients may value things differently than we value them. We think bowel movement frequency is important. Patients may not care at all because their abdominal pain is still there, even though their bowel movement frequency is getting better. So there's an example, and IBS is a classic one, where there's a disconnect between what we care about and what patients care about.
1: Is the FDA buying this? Are they incorporating it? Do they want it? Will they label, put it in the label?
2: Slowly they're coming around to it. It used to be very difficult to get any kind of a claim on the basis of a patient-reported outcome. But more recently, there's a group within the FDA that is called the sealed group, and they are specifically created to look at patient-reported outcomes like quality of life and to consider their use in clinical trials. They've come a long way in the FDA, and now they're actually, I'd say, at the forefront amongst different regulatory agencies across the world in accepting quality of life as a valid and important endpoint for clinical trials. So the important thing for drug companies is to make sure that they follow their guidance, and they've developed a document called the PRO Guidance Document. And this is a very detailed handbook on how to develop a clinical trial using their rules, using health-related quality of life as an endpoint. And if a company can follow their rules to a T, the FDA will indeed give them a claim on the basis of quality of life. But that's a lot easier said than done.
1: Do you think well, there'll be a time where a quality of life endpoint will trump a physiologic endpoint?
2: Yeah, I suppose it depends on your perspective. For a patient's perspective, you know, they may not care at all what their physiologic parameters are looking like if they're not feeling well. So, if the major stakeholder is our patients, which really it is, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our patients to make them feel better. For using that perspective, health-related quality of life may often trump the physiologic parameters that we're accustomed to following.
1: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMDXM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Goldstein, and joining me to discuss quality of life, what does it measure and how does it help, is Dr. Brennan Spiegel, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Digestive Diseases at UCLA School of Medicine and a practicing gastroenterologist at the VA Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System. Well, let's go back to quality of life here for a second and ask a very simple question. Can this actually be incorporated in day-to-day practice and used as a measure of success or failure by a practicing physician?
2: It can, and it has been used in everyday clinical practice, but it's a little easier said than done. So earlier I was talking about the SF36, and this is a questionnaire that has 36 items. So you can imagine how difficult it would be for a patient to sit around in a waiting room filling out a questionnaire with 36 items, and then having a nurse or someone else score this and then give it to the physician, this is something that's going to take too much time to be tenable in regular clinical practice. So there have been other instruments that have been created specifically for use in everyday clinical practice that are short and easy to fill out and create an index, a number, that could be put on an intake sheet, almost like a vital sign. So the idea is to use quality of life like a vital sign so you can see where your patient is today and compare it to where your patient was on the last clinic visit and see if their quality of life has improved over time. If their quality of life is getting worse, it might mean that you're not serving the patient well. You need to think about changing what you're doing. That's the theory of how to do this. And but the reality is it's frequently not done. So we need to come up with better ways to penetrate this into everyday clinical practice.
1: Well, how does one know that if there's a change in the score, that it's a significant change and it's meaningful?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question because there's a big difference between statistically significant and clinically relevant. And this is a big issue that the FDA looks at also when designing clinical trials. So there's something called the MCID which just stands for Minimally Clinically Important Difference. And this is a number that could be used like a yardstick to lay over change scores over time and see if someone has exceeded this or not exceeded it. So as an example, the IBS-QOL is an instrument that's been developed for Irritable Bowel Syndrome. And on that scale, if someone gets better by 10 points over time, that's considered to be at least minimally important. If a patient exceeds that, it's important. If they don't exceed that amount, it's probably not really clinically relevant. So you can look at your patient, and if they come in with a 70, and the last time they were in clinic it was a 50, they got better by 20 points. Higher is better, and you can say to the patient, looks like you're feeling better according to this instrument. Whereas if they'd only gotten better by 5 points, it probably isn't clinically important, and it's within the margin of error.
1: Well, I want to thank you for uh, convincing our audience here today that there's a level of objectivity to measurement of quality of life and its incorporation into clinical care and in clinical research. I think you've been at the forefront of this issue over the last several years, and we look forward to having you back here in in the future. I'd like to thank you for being my guest from the UCLA School of Medicine, Dr. Brennan Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel, thank you very much for being here on GI Insights. Thanks so
0: much for having me. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.